welcome to the Bronovo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Hello, my friends, and welcome to this week's episode of the Bro Nouveau Podcast. I am your host, Thomas Pierce, here with you as I am every week for a impactful conversation to model healthy communication for men. My guest this week is Dr. Christopher Dusing. Dr. Dusing is the owner and director of Integrative Dialectical Behavioral Therapy and Psychotherapy. That's a private practice in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Dr. Dusing's experiences in education are varied and thorough. Uh, a quick summary for you here. A bachelor's degree in philosophy and English and religion. A master's of social work from the University of Pennsylvania. Postgraduate certifications in substance abuse counseling, as well as in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, as well as in modern psychoanalysis. And then most recently, Dr. Dusing completed his doctorate in clinical social work from the University of Pennsylvania. He has been in practice for over 20 years, helping many people cope with a wide variety of psychological presentations, including mood difficulties, psychosis, trauma, grief and loss, relationship challenges, addiction, and personality disorders. This is an absolutely fascinating conversation. I really hope you enjoy it. Thank you, and we'll see you next Friday on the Bro Nouveau Podcast. Hi, Chris. Thank you for being here. Absolutely, Thomas. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's a a new world of podcasting, right? I think I have the honor of of, uh, being the first person to ask you on a podcast, which I'm surprised about, honestly. But uh, (laughs) thanks for... Thanks for doing it. And um, I wanted to just start with kind of a foundational question of how did you get into this work? And then where are the areas that you find yourself spending the most time in right now? Sure. I got into this work in a very uh, circuitous manner. And I graduated from Ursinus College, my undergraduate degrees, I was a triple major in philosophy, English, and religion. Uh, I took one psychology class back then. And then what that translated to is I worked in the restaurant and nightclub and service industry for a few years out of college. And then I stumbled into social work um, by working with uh, the homeless population, also doing addiction counseling um, in the infamous area of Kensington. Uh, Philadelphia. And after that, I decided I wanted to become a therapist. And so the easiest route was to get my master's of social work, which was back in 1999 to 2001. And then I worked in inpatient psychiatry wards, uh, worked my way to outpatient clinics, and now uh, own a group practice and also I'm starting to branch into the field of psychedelic therapy. Um, How I got into this field, it's really a multifaceted answer. Uh, I'm a big believer in the wounded healer concept. So I think at the root, um, the reason I became a therapist is because of my personal experiences and and my life. Uh, Therapy has helped me greatly as well. Uh, So there really is a personal commitment there. And I'm also convinced that that's one of the factors that makes uh, a great therapist. 
not just the professional, not just the theoretical, uh, not even the experience uh, of practicing, but really how are we bringing ourselves uh, into the therapeutic realm? Mm. When when I hear that phrase, the wounded the wounded healer, my immediate um, connotation of it is potentially a not great one. Um, and what are the pros and cons? Do you think of that um, of that kind of concept of someone who is in the space and potentially motivated to be in the space because of their previous experiences? Um, you know, I recently had a conversation with a friend about how they would not want to work with someone who has the same issues that they're working on, um, and we kind of debated back and forth the the merits and. Uh, non-merits of that argument, but what, what are the pros and cons of that phenomenon of the wounded healer? I really think um, the wounded healer, first off, ties into a core social work concept in terms of use of self. Uh, so social workers really focus on use of self in their interactions, whatever type of social work you're in. The main advantage or strength of the wounded healer, and when I say wounded healer, I mean that in the context of a healer who has done the work and has put in the reps in terms of working on themselves and working on their wounds, integrating their various selves, getting very curious about themselves and their shadow sides, unresolved trauma. But all that being said, the wounded healer being an integrated wounded healer. I think the main advantage of that really comes down to empathy in terms of being able to relate uh, to our clients, not even just as clients or quote unquote patients where I'm trying to move away from that term because we're really focusing on the humanity of it. So the wounded healer, I believe, is able to empathize at a level that wouldn't be able to be accessed by someone who hasn't gone through similar adversity uh, in their lives. So with that being said, the disadvantages of being a wounded healer, I think that there can be vulnerabilities in terms of working with certain populations. Uh, So, for example, with trauma, If someone's trauma is very similar to yours, and let's say the therapist hasn't done a lot of work on it, uh, they can get pulled into unconscious or subconscious repetition cycles that they may not be aware of. Uh, Also, especially if they're not receiving high-quality supervision. So it can be a bit of an Achilles heel if the work hasn't been done. Uh, However, if the therapist has been doing the work and continues to do the work. I don't really think there's ever an end point where the therapist is fully actualized, but as long as they're in a process, uh, the wounded healer, I see that as really an overall strength and even something that I look for in the clinicians that I collaborate with. That makes total sense. So yeah, maybe for me and anyone else who has this connotation, it's a reframing, not of, wounded and you know carrying an open wound but rather 
wounded and healed slash continuing to heal as a healer. You know, not someone who's walking around with a ton of baggage that they haven't professionally processed. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. You mentioned the supervision in the supervisory period and kind of shifting gears towards the, you know, industry of psychology uh, as someone who has looked at the, the field, that supervisory period um, does seem to be a bit of a, of a challenge in the model. Um, and I've, and the, for, for example, someone goes to school, um, they pay to go to school where they're not earning money. And then postgraduate, whether this is a master's level or perhaps at a higher level too, there's a minimum number of supervised hours of work that needs to be done as a therapist before being able to work independently, similar to, let's say, a pilot, for example. Um, <laughs> as a professional in the space who's been in the space for a long time, do you feel this is an appropriate model or are there ways to optimize or make it a lower barrier to entry to the field? That's a really good question because the supervisory requirements in terms of gaining full licensure uh, as a social worker, as a clinical social worker, as a licensed professional counselor, as a psychologist, we're literally talking about thousands of hours of training. Um, I think that a way to make it more accessible, and this is something I had to do early in my career, is impart the message that a therapist, a clinician, really needs to seek out their own supervision process. So what I mean by that is versus waiting for the right situation, um, or right supervisor uh, to to give you the experience, reach out to people. Uh, I'm, I'm always available in terms of young clinicians giving me a call, uh, looking for mentorship, uh, wanting to bend my ear. And if I can't supervise them, I will point them somewhere else. If someone is hungry and really wants to learn and wants to get into the field in a healthy way, reach out for help and it'll come to you. Uh, in terms of like professionally, that's a question I would have to chew a little bit more on in terms of the licensing boards and all of the requirements uh, that come along with that. However, the experience is absolutely necessary. Thousands of hours, uh, all the supervision, all the clients, uh, especially the difficult ones that are tough to work with, that's all necessary to become a great therapist. And I'll also just say it takes time. I like to say that my therapeutic training really began after I got out of my master's of social work program. I did almost a decade of psychoanalytic training. Uh, and that's really where I learned uh, to do therapy. One of the strengths with the psychoanalytic model, it's a very intensive one, both with individual and group supervision over the course of years while also requiring uh, the Anelson, the training analyst, to be in their own analytic process, uh, sometimes multiple times a week. Interesting. So, yeah, that's a that's a great topic too. So, 
the idea of psychoanalysis. I've seen you have great content on LinkedIn, by the way. If anybody wants to <laughs> follow you on LinkedIn, I, I've learned a lot. Um, you had a recent post about you know modern versus classic psychoanalysis and the combination of the two as as a a best practice uh, was what I took away from it. Perhaps not. <clears throat> the correct assessment, but what, what was, or what is, um, classic, uh, psycho psychotherapy. And then when you talk about, um, how you do it today, what are the, what are the main differences? Sure. That, that really speaks to something that is at the core of myself, uh, both as a therapist and uh, as a patient who's been in his own analysis for a couple decades now. So when psychoanalysis is said generally in university settings or the traditional uh, learning environments, uh, what's the first thing you think of, Thomas, uh, in terms of the, the father of psychoanalysis? Uh, Jung. Jung, but even before him, Freud, right? Um, and it's interesting to see the reactions that come along with Freud. It's almost that psychoanalysis can be regarded as a bit of a dirty or taboo or obsolete word. Um, however, a lot of people don't realize that there are two branches of psychoanalysis. One's the classic form of Freud where the patient lays on the couch. Uh, the therapist is a blank slate, uh, doesn't really reveal much about themselves. And, tries to formulate these interpretations. The, the client is cured mainly through the analyst giving interpretations to the client. Now, there was a gentleman, uh, Dr. Spotnitz, who came up with modern psychoanalysis. One thing with Freud is he believed that acute populations such as schizophrenics could not be treated. Dr. Spotnitz came out with modern psychoanalysis, which not many people know about, and I'm so thankful to have this opportunity to bring it into the light a little bit. But with modern analysis, the analyst joins the patient where they're at. So at times, if the analyst needs to be a blank slate and lay back and let the client run and say everything and free associate, great. If the patient needs to be held in a more active manner, great. So in modern psychoanalysis, I feel, I believe that the therapist is a more dynamic and fluid and adaptive entity. And with that being said, a lot of individuals see psychoanalysis as obsolete. Um, they also get focused on some things like the Oedipal complex, the Electra complex, uh, penis envy. And I, I like to say to people, instead of really focusing on those aspects, which Freud got a lot of things wrong, however, he got some things right. And what I mean by that is the concept of saying everything, which is a therapeutic assignment. Say everything as it occurs to you in the here and now, without filters, without censorship, be who you are, no judgments. Uh, with that assignment, it's actually very integratable with all types of psychotherapy. So for example, on the other side of my training is dialectical behavior therapy. And at the core of dialectical behavior therapy is uh, mindfulness. 
So mindfulness is being present in the moment. And if you think about it, free association and saying everything in the moment is a very powerful form of mindfulness. Um, I like to see it as a verbal meditation. So I'm really curious and fascinated about integrative psychotherapy and how some of these uh, diametrically opposed schools of thought can be synergized and uh, made whole into new psychotherapies moving forward as we move through this third and fourth wave of behaviorism. Yeah, it's fascinating. So where did the school of thought or the status quo go uh, post Freud as his, as his methods lost the sheen or they lost their credibility in some sense? Um, so I think with Freud, it's a shame because him and Jung had to split off and the analysts got into a bit of uh, splitting and not collaborating and each person having their own schools of thought. And then we moved into ego psychology, object relations, attachment theory, um, developmental theory, all these things, again, pushing the envelope to the next thing. And then we had very rich movements in terms of humanism, existential psychotherapy. Um, Victor Frankl comes to mind in terms of man's search for meaning, meaning-making therapies. Uh, Rollo May is another individual that comes to mind. And then what happened in terms of what I see and believe is we had the advent of managed care come in in the 70s and 80s. And with that, you see some of these very rich schools of thought almost get decapitated because in service of, quote unquote, time limited treatments, uh, solution focused treatments, uh, treatments that need to be observable and measurable and evidence based practice. Uh, you see the rise and dominance of cognitive behavior therapy and various other uh, behavioral therapies, such as DBT, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, which have a large body of evidence-based uh, literature. However, a lot of people don't know that there is research, very pertinent research on psychodynamic um, therapies and showing the efficacy of them. Uh, even in comparison to the dominant behaviorism of CBT, DBT at this point in the psychotherapy field. I really feel that clinicians from different schools of thought aren't um, dialoguing enough. So, for example, psychoanalysis tends to be sequestered in small institutions. You'll, you'll see small schools and institutions, mainly in the Northeast Corridor of the United States, and then you'll see the DBTers, the CBTers, the positive psychologists, um, and then, too, people who are, quote, unquote, eclectic and pulling from various schools of thought. However, there's not enough cross-pollination uh, cross, uh, going on. Yeah, it's really interesting, too, that the Northeast has the most traditional modality. I feel that's very fitting <laughs> for the culture. <laughs> You know, that we're both, that we both grew up in. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then um, where do you see, oh, sorry, go, please go ahead. 
Uh, just another thought that popped into my head that came out of my study of advanced DBT therapists and advanced DBT mechanisms of change in my dissertation. Uh, something that's fascinating is to take a look at trans-theoretical and trans-diagnostic treatments. So these, these are treatments that really span over theory and span over specific diagnoses. We're caught in a time of specialization. So you have OCD. This is the therapy you go to. You have borderline personality disorder. You go to DBT, right? Trans-theoretical and trans-diagnostic lenses of, of therapy are very interesting to look at because they look at factors that span over theories. So, so for example, um, what came out of my dissertation, uh, the primary curative mechanism of change is the therapeutic relationship. So no matter if someone is practicing wow. psychoanalysis, DBT, anything in between, the primacy of the therapeutic relationship needs to be discussed and refreshed and emphasized and continually questioned uh, in terms of how is that manifesting in a treatment? And not only how is the relationship going well, but where are the resistances? Where are the treatment destructive resistances? Where are the hotspots that are difficult to work with? A lot of therapists will avoid those hotspots, the countertransferences, the way they feel about patients, when really the way through that and the way through growth is to sometimes work with populations and clients in an ethical and competent manner, but people that may not be the most comfortable patients, yep. if you understand what I'm saying, with good supervision. And, and good uh, individual process. Because without that, you'll end up taking those patients home with you in terms of the, the, the space that uh, they take in your head when you're lying at night staying, staring at the ceiling and wondering why you can't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. And I think that is very interesting, the primacy of the therapeutic relationship, because that ch directly challenges the ego of the provider and forces the provider to make an honest assessment even beyond the hard skills they can bring to the table. How am I applying these skills with this specific individual? And it's even, you know, less, I feel in a less scientific way, just more about what if I'm hearing correctly, the vibe between the two people, the energy, the dynamic, is this still honest? Is this still, you know, life giving to the, to the patient? Um, and that would be a hard thing. I would imagine for a therapist who's very successful, for example, or, or competent to realize, okay, like this, this specific dynamic, something has gone stale. Right. And I think a lot of people have a misconception of therapy as all these aha moments and breakthroughs and achieving goals and uh, quick tips, techniques, tricks, hacks to um, fix things. When really a lot of good psychotherapy can be boring, it can be stagnant, it can be resistant, um, it, it can be stuck, it can be repetition. And all these things are part of the human condition. And it's interesting what you said. It really makes me think in terms of how do we work with the human condition? 
we work with that not with technique, but with relationship and with connection. Ancient philosophers said that man is a social creature. Uh, left in isolation and disconnection, um, humankind gets very ill on both a micro and macro level. So connection, relationship, returning to that. And then how do we apply the theories around that is, is I feel, the way to go in terms of therapy. And again, coming back to integration. And one thing I love about social work, Thomas, whatever works, <laughs> whatever works. So if we need to step outside of our usual toolkit, uh, that's what we do, especially when we're working in systems, uh, macro systems that are broken. Are those societal systems or the intervention systems of the the tools in the therapist toolbox? Uh, dialectically, you know, I'm going to answer that with both. So systems yeah. of <laughs> systems of society as a whole. Uh, again, one thing I really love about clinical social work is always looking at the societal lenses uh, through which mental illness presents and perpetuates uh, things like uh, racism and class theory. Uh, also, too, uh, systems of care in terms of managed care and the delivery of health care through third-party payers, and then working its way down into organizational uh, and really getting into microscopic systems in terms of your relationship with your supervisor and all of those things. It's really a whole lot. A lot of people think that the therapy room is a dyad, like it's the individual and the therapist. Mm when really there's all of these systems feeding into that room. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I, th I think that's a great uh, segue to societal topics. One more I have on the modality world. Uh, are you familiar with internal family systems? Uh, yes. Internal family systems. Um, that is a hot therapy right now. It is being talked about a lot. I'm not fluent in it. I have a number of colleagues who are, which you, who you may want to interview to really get into IFS. But IFS, in terms of my understanding of it, is working with various parts of self. And that is very, very important work. Identity work is very, very important. Um, with DBT, and borderline personality disorder, one of the last vestiges of borderline personality disorder when we get to the advanced levels of treatment is identity work. And I feel like IFS or even something different like um, Jungian psychology where we're talking about shadow sides uh, and bringing those to consciousness and resolving the splits is is the way to go. And so I have, I have a high level of respect for IFS. And in my understanding of it, I see it as very integratable with DBT. Very cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm working with a IFS practitioner right now. And it's it's the most um, the the model or the therapeutic experience that's clicked with me the most in my life. Um, which is which has been fantastic, and yeah, it is identity work, and it's been fascinating to just have a third party. You know, I, I essentially the I describe a feeling, they ask probing questions, and we identify the parts 
that have brought forward those feelings feelings and it's kind of meta it's kind of abstract but then we give the microphone to the part that has the feelings and lets them speak while at the same time asking the parts that are activated by that part speaking to give us space and then at the same time giving the part that's now speaking the respect let let them know that i'm here you know, with respect and identify the feelings I have towards it. It's all very meta. <laughs> mm-hmm. but Absolutely. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. It's been very cool. That's incredible. It sounds like incredible work you're doing with an amazing therapist. Uh, and uh, it makes my heart sing that you're involved in that process. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Bro Nouveau Podcast. Please leave the show a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To enjoy full-length video episodes, head over to YouTube. You can search Bro Nouveau or simply follow the link in the episode description below. If you or someone you know would make a fascinating guest for this kind of conversation, you can reach me via email. That address is contact at bronouveau.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of the show. Moving over to societal topics, um, you kind of identified it, isolation is a killer on a macro and micro level. Um, I believe from from reading your uh, career work, it sounds like you work with more adult populations, um, but what are you hearing about adolescence post-COVID and what those two years, the impact those two years had on our kids? I don't, I don't even think the impact is had. I, I think the impact is having it's still very, very present. Um, and the majority of my work is with adults. I do treat a few adolescents. And I, I think the pandemic, I have trouble wrapping my head around it. I feel like I'm still recovering from the pandemic. Uh, and what I see is the primary factor there. I think it really reinforced a lot of things that were already in motion with technology uh, in terms of creating a virtual world. Um, And now we are surrounded by screens. Um, Genuine person-to-person interaction can be rare. (laughs) Uh, It's so easy to stay in the house now. Uh, You can pretty much subsist in the house. And I'm all for technology in terms of a mindful and ethical manner. However, there's something to be said about sitting in the physical presence of an individual or in a group of people, even something simple as like playing a game of basketball and being present with that and the feelings that come along with in-person interaction uh, that I think are missing from technology and and technology-based life. Um, So that's really one of the main things I'm seeing. Uh, And I think that with COVID, 
too, just think about it. We spent a time where everyone was walking around with masks and even just a general sense of paranoia. Uh, so in terms of how we feel about our fellow human beings, I think we're still detoxing from that in terms of being able to see people smile. Uh, not, I remember the early stages of the pandemic and walking around and wiping down Amazon packages and things like that. It, it, it was very, very disturbing and continues to be so. I also think in terms of adults too, the new norm going back to work, I have a lot of patients in terms of returning to the office where it creates a lot of panic and dissonance because we've gotten used to uh, virtual work. So it's a big question, and I feel like my answer is a bit amorphous and rambling, so I think it's an answer in process. However, I will say it's dominant in pretty much all the work that I do, even in the group therapy work that I do. Great. Yeah, thank you. I completely agree, and the what I find for myself personally is that there's an inertia that comes with being antisocial. And I find that, say, for example, I, like last weekend, my girlfriend was out of town and I could have just been home alone all weekend. And I've, I'm a very social person. I thrive on connection. However, when I'm, say, I didn't really socialize with anyone for 24 hours, forcing myself to get out of the house becomes more difficult. And just that mm-hmm. natural inclination, it could be a me thing. I would obviously is a me thing, but I wonder if there are others who also find that. And it's, we know that this is kind of a poison comfort being isolated, but it's hard to reach out because there are feelings of resistance there. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone has had that, I would assume, throughout the last COVID experience. Yeah, like you said, it was, it was wild. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's one word for it and i love the way that you put it in terms of inertia um a, bo- a body at rest will stay at rest and the body in motion will stay in motion I, I think that that is the crux of a lot of mental health and and mental illness and the battle between wellness and sickness is the ability to Realize that point where inertia and momentum intersect. And this is where DBT skills can be really helpful. A skill that comes to mind is opposite action, opposite to emotion, where we act completely contrary to how we feel inside. We don't wait for the correct feeling to come along to take action. We take action and then note the feeling state that occurs afterwards. And I think a really good example, Netflix right? Or TV, pick, pick your poison, whatever your streaming services. Netflix will cue it up to where you watch a whole season of whatever your poison is to the point of where are you watching the TV or is the TV watching you? Mm. Right. And that's, that's something I ask, ask my clients. Are you on social media or is the social media just kind of there controlling you? I see a lot of time lost to scrolling, myself included. Uh-huh. And a large part of that is driven by toxic emotions. Uh, doom scrolling and something in particular that has really caught my eye, envy scrolling. Uh, 
and all the poison that comes from seeing curated experiences and taking that as a reality that you do not have. Oh, and I can think too, if whenever, if I was went in the past in like a post breakup or a recent breakup, that kind of looking at their stuff, you know, that, that poisoned well, there's so many avenues like that. And something I've identified in other people and in myself is that when I am giving into those distractions, that's it's distracting me from it's a numbing, it's a self medication of some other feeling I don't want to look at, and that could be a very specific feeling of you know a wound I have, or it could just be the feeling of avoiding doing something worthwhile because I'm feeling lazy in that moment, you know. It, whether it's, and I, I guess my, the thrust of this point is that, that social media distraction can serve, in my estimation, deep seated wounds, or it can just be something lighter. Like, I know I could be productive, but I'm not going to be because I'm lazy. <laughs> and it, it's wild that it can fill both of those uh, vessels. Right. And even think about that in terms of the interpretation of I'm lazy. And really, what a vulnerable point that is, because that can lead to cognitive distortions. You can weaponize that against yourself and even contribute to more of the inertia. Um, And you bring up a great point. One of the things with cell phones and screens and technology uh, that I think is very insidious is the emotional avoidance that comes along with scrolling and immediately grabbing for your phone or Uh, your phone grabbing you. So for example, uh, maybe you are at the Grand Canyon, right? Taking in the vista, right? The the marvel of nature. And then your phone buzzes with a notification. And all of a sudden you're going down to your phone and you're not looking at the vista anymore. And then you have to take a picture with the phone. (laughs) And you can see how it's a very, very distracted existence. And people don't, allow themselves to put the phone down and feel what they're feeling. In particular, boredom. Uh, A lot of people I see confusing boredom with non-productivity, which really, I think in a lot of ways, we need to be bored in order to let our brains breathe. So much pressure to be productive in this modern society. So much. I mean, you'll see that in LinkedIn. It's just a constant uh, need to produce, need to produce increased production. We need to slow down, (laughs) put down the phones. And another thing I'll just say with the phones uh, is people are reading more than ever in terms of volume. However, in terms of books and, and books of substance, I feel like, and this is the English major in me speaking up that that's fading with myself included, because I used to be able to read Uh, classic literature like it was nothing. And now I sit down with a a real book and it's difficult because I feel like my brain and neurological wiring has been changed by these electronic devices. Absolutely is. All of that's coming to the fore. And I think there are two things we've talked about that are identifying the sickness of our society. So, three that come to mind. So one, just the prevalence of alcohol. We know that that's bad, but no one only, 
you know, very few people, I should say, actively avoid it. That's number one. Number two, we all just went through this traumatic experience of COVID and, and we're not processing it en masse. And three, just like the alcohol, there are all these serious downsides to the cell phones that we've all acknowledged, but there's, again, not a group movement to inform their use, mitigate their consequences, any of that. Um, I don't know, man. Sometimes it feels like as a person trying to be healthy, it's like, <laughs> why is why is no one, why did fewer people, why didn't more people not care about this stuff? It's uh, interesting. I'm not sure if uh, in a consumerist society where the powers that be in many ways want us to consume, I am not sure if consumerism is really integratable with health mm. <laughs> and uh, self-sustainability. Um, think of commercials and, again, kind of social media uh, and how much of our purchasing comes out of possibly a place of insecurity where I need something bigger and better, uh, trying to feed a void with retail therapy. Again, all these things uh, can be very wonderful as well. However, as I said, I'm not sure how invested a consumer society and the private companies that are driving that are invested in wellness, both in an individualistic term and, and also a macro term, because we may not consume as much. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so many topics that I would love to continue chatting about with the remaining time. Um, the one thing I wanted to hear your perspectives on was this, this seesaw or the pendulum swinging around the idea of masculinity in the U S. Um, there was in the last five to 10 years, a, in my estimation, necessary movement to call out bad behavior, you know, inform men about how their power is affecting the people around them. And then now we have this, uh, in my estimation, overcorrection to the point where many men feel uh, they're walking on eggshells, they're afraid of being masculine, and there's a lot of confusion. And my concern is that the young generation of boys will either have two kind of extreme options that neither of which will serve us individually or as a society. Um, so I wanted to ask if you had any if you've also noticed that and if you have it, if you've thought about it at all. I, I have. And as a, as a male therapist in a female dominated profession, I think about it a lot. Um, I, I serve a lot of male uh, patients and it is definitely something that is being talked about uh, at least behind the closed doors of, of my therapeutic office, very, very necessary conversations to be had. And it's hard to wrap my head around it because we want to have a culture where both femininity and masculinity on the dialectic and everything in between, in all its different gender manifestations, um, 
is validated, accepted, and heard. And that includes marginalized classes and also, too, in my opinion, the previously dominant classes as well. We want to be really careful about overcorrections because silencing can occur, cancel culture can occur very, very quickly. And in terms of being a quote-unquote man and masculine, I think the way forward with that is to really question what that means. And not in a critical way, but a very curious way. And questioning what it is to be a man, what it is uh, to have your primary hormone is testosterone, Uh, what it means uh, to be a a man in this ever-changing society. Also, too, what it means to be a man in terms of mental illness. So a lot of mental diagnoses, uh, such as borderline personality disorder, are very, very skewed uh, towards females uh, in diagnoses and Mm. I don't know if enough questions are asked about how how does borderline personality disorder manifest in men? How does depression manifest in men? How do men be vulnerable uh, and experience shame? Uh, And also, too, realizing that as men, we have extraordinarily, uh, extraordinarily large blind spots. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I've done a lot of work on myself and I still have a ton of work to do in terms of accessing my emotions, being comfortable with my emotions uh, and being able to verbalize them freely. And there needs to be a safe environment for men to be able to do that. And that's the way forward versus necessarily finger pointing and being like, this has been the bad behavior for so long and it needs to be corrected. I'm not saying there isn't um, validity behind that. I, I agree there are corrections that need to be made. However, it needs to be open dialogue. And honestly, there needs to be disagreement as well and conflict between various thinkers from various schools of thought, because in that friction is going to come the dynamic dialogue that will move us forward. I think, too, and this is just speaking as a man, as a person, it can be very difficult to be a man. And I'm not sure if that's heard enough and seen enough. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a very complex question. Um, It's also a question, too, where within me, there's a, a bit of a little bit of trepidation around answering it. And that in itself is an indicator of safety. Safety needs to be had for men to be able to speak freely and make the mistakes and be corrected or or be enlightened and then be held to be able to move forward. In addition to all the other things that are going on uh, in terms of the cultural movements, the Me Too movements, really listening uh, to to the voices of women, the feminine side, uh, but also realizing that masculinity and femininity are not exclusive. (laughs) 
you know, <laughs> it's uh, it's really such a fluid conversation. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful you brought it up because I feel like a lot of people are skirting around it. And maybe even, too, that masculinity can be a bit of a, a dirty word mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. yeah, I hope that's helpful. It, that's, yeah, beautifully said. It is difficult to be a man. There are, you know, in my, I, I can only speak about my experiences, but the things I'm unpacking are things like, you know, I, like, for example, I have a masculine form, right? I am a large, strong man, and that benefits me. But what if I wasn't that form? That's what society expects of me. That would be really tough if I didn't have that or I had a disability and being a man. Another one, um, career, expectations about money, um, sexual performance. Right. Even just uh, disposition, uh, how one handles emotions like we talked about. You know, these are all individualized, but, you know... (laughs) I know that I didn't grow up in isolation on an island. I grew up in a society. So if I have these feelings, I'm sure there are other men who do. And tying with that, tied in with that, you talked about the necessity of conflict and you know healthy disagreement and discussion. And that is another concern I have um, on on kind of a non-academic level, just among people talking. You know, we I don't think it's good to encourage silence on topics, you know, let someone with bad ideas talk and then disable their ideas with better arguments is my, my preference in a lot of scenarios. And then, you know, if we think about kind of big picture, our institutions of learning, if people are being muzzled and controversial or tough topics are not being scrutinized in a scientific way, that's going to have a, a bad knock-on effect to our society as a whole. You know, we look at the big inst- uh, institutions in our society, you know, schools, healthcare, uh, bureaucratic administrations of government and community, though we all have forces pushing on each other. And if one of them, like the academics can't pursue real questions because they're afraid of being censored, that's, that's bad. <laughs> Right. That's not good. Right. No, no. And in that vacuum, what will arise from that is extremism and uh, figureheads that perhaps embody and preach toxic masculinity. Right. And given our age of uh, technology and misinformation and uh, epidemic of misinformation, uh, that is a very dangerous place to be. And I feel the only way through that is through dialogue agreed and circling really back nicely to what you said the primacy of the therapeutic relationship it's therapeutic to have good conversations with your friends or with political adversaries that all of that is is necessary yeah absolutely and if if you disagree or you have a reaction um let me even personalize that. If, if I disagree with someone or I have a strong reaction to something that someone is saying, I really try to slow myself down. And a very simple technique. I try to listen to the sentences all the way through to the period instead of preparing my response. And then after the period, 
taking a breath before responding. I feel like in these conversations, uh, they can really take a life of their own and all of a sudden become like machine gun clatter. And people are already coming up with their prescribed dialogues and responses, even before the other person has fully fleshed out their thought. Now, there has to be uh, reciprocity. (laughs) There has to be a parallel process with the other individual in order for that dialogue to occur. Healthy conflict dialogue ruptures and repairs. It's a very, very difficult thing to have. (laughs) And I think in a very ego-driven society where a lot of value can be put on being quote unquote right. Uh, That is just not the way we need to evolve both as men and, and as women uh, and everything in between and as a society as a whole. And you know what? Humanity is a, a messy thing. The human condition is a messy thing. So there are many messy and open-ended conversations like this one that we're having today that need to be had. And I'm, I'm thankful for individuals like you that are, that are opening up voices. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for lending your voice to it. Uh, we, we are at time, Chris, but thank you so much. I really appreciate your, your wealth of knowledge and experience for my listeners out there. Uh, Chris is an entrepreneur as well. He has his own private practice and then a group practice that he runs is called integrative DBT and psychotherapy integrative DBT.com. Um, they are accepting clients in Pennsylvania, Delaware, and New Jersey. So if you enjoyed this conversation, Chris and his team, uh, may be able to, to help you with your own, um, mental health journey. Absolutely. Absolutely. Also Colorado, Florida, and Hawaii. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. <laughs> the fun states. <laughs> <laughs> Can't get stuck in a Northeast corridor, man. <laughs> yeah. awesome. uh, such a pleasure, right. Thomas. Such a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you, Chris.